This recording is a production of Faith Builders Educational Programs. This presentation was recorded at Teachers Conference 2018 held at Faith Builders from October 12 to 14. Well, I would actually like to, for a few minutes this morning, um, begin with what I wanted to end with yesterday. But I, I overextended my time and I thought I had had imposed uh, <clears throat> upon you long enough. But I wanted to end yesterday with a story that Morris Hess told, or he wrote about uh, his experience during World War I as a CO that he actually wrote and was published in 1946 after World War II. And this appears in The Vindicator, and the title of the article is, He Could Not Say No. It was 6 a.m. on November 6, 1917. The place was Camp Meade, Maryland. Did I turn this thing on? Oh, I did, okay. Thank you, sorry. Is it on now? Am I on now? Okay, very good, sorry about that. He could not say no. It was 6 a.m. on November 6, 1917. The place was Camp Mead, Maryland. A company of recently drafted men were being lined up for military drill. Five of the groups stepped out of the line and stated their conscientious objections to participation in any form of military service. Four were members, and the fifth was an adherent of various non-resistant sects from southern Pennsylvania. <clears throat> the act of stepping out of line started a series of threats, intimidations, and testings of the members of the group by the military officers. After all stood firm, they were paraded from place to place, and finally were taken to the segregation camp for conscientious objectors. For, for an interview by the officer in charge. For the group satisfied him of the sincerity of their objections. When the fifth, the adherent, was interviewed, the officer in charge succeeded in convincing him that he was not really an objector and that he was merely afraid of being killed. That young man with a pacifist background was led back to the military company from which he had come come because he could not say no in a time of crisis. During the winter and spring, he was put through the, a course of military training, perhaps unwillingly, and in the early summer, he was shipped to France with the 79th Division. In the closing days of the war, just a few days before the armistice, the regiment to which he had been assigned was thrown into the offensive in the Argonne Forest. It was reported that 60% of that regiment were casualties. The young man, that young man, adherent of a non-resistance sect, went to his death because he could not say no at a critical moment in his life. We must remember that many others than war casualties cannot say no. Numerous are the examples of the human tendency to be conformist to follow the crowd. But almost daily, we are called upon to take a firm stand against evil tendencies and the trends of the time in which we live. By grace, we can say no 
when right is more significant to us than our fate. Consequences can have little influence on the actions of one who is prepared to submit himself to God's will. Our further duty is to impress our fellow men by precept and by example of the necessity for acceptance of the divine plan for our redemption. One of the things I did want to end with uh, yesterday, or what the point, two points I, I wanted to make yesterday, which is, was also how I ended Friday evening. And Friday evening, I looked at Schleitheim. And if you remember, Schleitheim deals with peace in two ways, in two of its articles. The one is dealing with separation from the world, from evil. And the Christian is separated from all the diabolical weapons of violence. And then in the sword, where the Christian, the sword is outside the perfection of Christ. Here we have stated a very important principle and connection that the early Anabaptists made that Morse Hess is making here, that there is a connection between separation from the world and our peace position. And one of the, one of the um, in a sense, one of the practical things that it accomplishes, other than the fact that we are to be separated from the evil things in the world, but it's going against the tide. It's saying no to uh, things that everybody else around us are saying yes to. It gets us practiced in going against the crowd, going against the way of the world and the pattern of the world and the direction of the world. It habituates us to that. And it is no accident that in World War I and then also in World War II, the Anabaptist groups, which were the most nonconformist in their practices, were also the ones who held the most strongly and consistently to non-resistance. So I want to leave that with you. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about how important it is to habituate yourselves to not conform to the patterns of the world and how the world wants to influence you and wants to put you into its mold. Part of the transformative thing that Jesus Christ does is to place us in his mold and form us in that way. And so when this time of testing comes, or when we are faced with it, we will be habituated to say no to the world. Not just to be difficult, but to be willing to stand up for what God wants us to do. Well, this morning, I want to look at um, peace deployed, nurturing peaceable attitudes and practices. And I think um, there is a handout that's been given to you. And I have four points here I want to look at. Peace and politics. Peace and creation. Peace and the just community. Peace and the resurrection. Now, I'm going to flip the second and the third um, points. I'm going to look at um, peace and um, the just community after looking at peace and politics because uh, I think upon further reflection, what I have to say about peace and creation really does uh, 
uh, will segue, uh, peace and resurrection, that will segue very nicely into peace and resurrection. First of all, peace and politics. If you think about um, our relationship or how we are to relate to the government and to the political processes and the demands that our government makes upon you, what is the text in the New Testament that first comes to your mind? Romans 13. Romans 13, 1 to 7. Let every subject, soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, all to their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, in this particular passage, Paul is talking about, uses the term authorities, which is actually very closely related to what we looked at on Friday evening when we talked about principalities and powers. There is a connection between um, the uh, governing authorities, the political powers, and so on, and the principalities and powers. Um, and here um, we have this, we have this um, uh, description in which we see that God has set these, these uh, persons, uh, these structures up for one basic point, purpose. And that is to restrain evil and to maintain order in a wicked world, a world marred by sin. Okay, it's a way of restraining and creating order. And Schleinheim, uh, I think, very adequately explains that this is outside the perfection of Christ. And that's why uh, the, the uh, leaders there at Schleidheim said, we cannot be a magistrate and use the sword and to use violence and so on. We're within the perfection of Christ. And I don't have a, lo- a long time to talk about that, but that I think if we can accept that as a given, it really does help us to understand what is going on here. Now, when it talks about servants... Here, it certainly is using some of the same language when it talks about we being servants and stuff like that. But uh, you have to under the thing about words is you 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 know words have different meaning depending on context. Uh, even if you look at the word world in the Gospel of John, okay, it talks about for God so loved the world he gave his only begotten Son, and then and then it talks about the things of you know it talks as as the world as being this opposing thing. So you always have to read words in the context. You always have to understand terms and so on in the context. And here I think we're definitely seeing not ministers, not servants like servants in our church community, leaders in our church community, but people who God has set up structures that God has set up to restrain evil. Okay, and to maintain order, and that's very important. But it's provisional, 
and it's limited. Jesus tells us when the um, Pharisees came to him and tried to get him to, uh, they, they tried to ask, well, should we pay tribute to Caesar? And of course, Caesar is an occupying force. It's, it's a foreign power controlling um, the, the Jewish people. And there is this undercurrent. It's not as fully developed uh, in Jesus' day as it would be maybe a generation later. Um, but there is this undercurrent of Jewish nationalism, uh, or maybe we should say uh, religious uh, fervor that wants to restore Israel to its independence, to its, um, uh, where they're governing their own affairs as they see it under uh, God. And these foreign rulers are oppressing, they're controlling. And of course, one of the things that Rome wanted was money. One of the things they wanted was money. And so they bring this coin. To Je- they, I mean, they tell Jesus, well, should we pay tribute to Caesar? Jesus says to me, show me a coin. And they bring out this coin. And he says, whose picture is on it? Whose image is on it? And he said, Caesar's. Now, this is a really interesting little enactment here because these people are, are they, they, there are people who said, well, we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be under Caesar. We should throw them off and so on. But they're using Caesar's coins to buy and to sell. They're actually involved in the whole system that they're, they're probably objecting to, or at least they think to. And Jesus simply says to them, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And one of the characteristics of Caesar is that he demands more than what is actually due to him. Okay, he demands more than what is actually due to him. He is constantly wanting to say, really, where does your ultimate allegiance lie? It, it lies with me. Okay? And Jesus is telling us, no, what we give to Caesar is limited, it's provisional, it's, it's, it's hedged in by what is your ultimate allegiance, and that is your allegiance to God. He gets everything. And Caesar only gets a very small slice. All right? Now, there is, there is actually another text that talks about government. And it is not, I mean, Romans 13 is kind of a positive way of looking at government. This is the good that government can do. But there's another text in uh, the New Testament that talks about government in a very negative kind of way. And that is in Revelation chapter 13. Okay, let's turn to Revelation chapter 13, if you have your Bibles. And John, in this vision, he said, I stood in the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, his mouth was like the mouth of a lion, the dragon gave him power, his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast." So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. 
Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Here we see, uh, we have these terms power, authority, um, thrones. These are referring to, these are governmental terms. And the picture you get here is of rulers, of, of, of political powers and so on, who are being controlled by the dragon. Who's the dragon? The dragon is Satan. Okay? And he's using these various uh, political entities and so on to wreak havoc, to persecute God's people and so on. And, um, but it's only for a time. It's only for a time. It's not for eternity. And John, in his vision, saw that governments oftentimes can become the instruments of the evil one and that the evil one will, will try to subvert them and to use them to bring about his will. But we must keep in mind, even as, as John sees here in the book of Revelations, that his time is short and it will come to an end and God is as he, as Paul talked about when he talked about defeating the principalities and the powers through Jesus' resurrection, okay, and through the, the um, coming uh, judgment and glorification. Um, he is ruler over all. So we have, when we think about government and we think about what it does and so on, we need to keep these two things in tension. We need to keep them together. Um, and to remind ourselves about what, it, what it, can, it does and it can do. And I think um, we have, I think, seen in many cases and many times when governments become uh, the instrument of evil. And ironically enough, in some ways, or paradoxically enough, uh, even in some cases, they still function to maintain some order. Okay. But as Schleidheim reminds us, it's outside the perfection of Christ. Now, that's kind of the background I want to work with here. And here, then I want to make some observations. In 1991, I um, moved back to my uh, home area in Pennsylvania and started teaching, uh, ta- began teaching in another school. And... And uh, I had a really, uh, six years there, three of them were with Melvin, a really good teaching experience and so on. But I remember that year was the year of Desert Storm. And if you remember, there was all these, no, you probably don't remember. That's right, you guys don't remember. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Many of you do, do not remember this. I remember it very clearly. Okay. Our country got involved in a war. Uh, we sent troops over uh, to Kuwait and then invaded Iraq. Um, uh, it was actually not a very long war. 
not very many American casualties. 100,000 uh, Iraqi soldiers were killed uh, because, you know, we, our nation really did have the overwhelming fire. And you know what? The rationale for this war was that the Iraqis were to have, were, had weapons of mass destruction. And, we, and our country needed to take them out before they used these weapons of mass destruction. Well, you know, we later found out as time went on and they began looking for these weapons of mass destruction, they didn't exist. Um, and so the rationale for doing this um, really, um, really did, wasn't there. Um, that's actually, that's the, um, that was the rationale for later on. Um, we, got, we got out of that, President, first President Bush decided to stop, and then later on, was that, what was that, Desert? Uh, that was a different one. That was, what, that was back in 2001 after 9-11. Okay. But I remember, I wasn't teaching school in 2001. I was teaching school in 1991. I remember... I was teaching high school. I remember these high school students coming from good, non-resistant Mennonite homes. I don't know if you know anything about the Cumberland Valley, but we really are Mennonites there. Okay? We don't play around with being Mennonites in the Cumberland Valley, do we, Melvin? We're, no, we're, we're really Mennonites, okay? Um, and, uh, but I was shocked. These young people coming home, and they were... Yes, we should go over there. We should bomb them. We should take them out. I thought, we should bomb them? We should take them out? What are you saying here? How many of you guys, folks who have taught for a while, have you heard that kind of stuff? Have you heard it? We should be appalled. We should be appalled. And, of course, one of the things that, uh, unless you're... you're um, Unless you don't have the wherewithal that you don't see, any, if you don't see any problem with that, well, you, we can talk about that. Um, I think you ought to. Part of our task, but you know, young people like that, don't, as, my, as my mother would say, they didn't suck it out of their thumb. Okay? They didn't get strange. They sucked it out of their, she, said they, she would say they didn't get strange. They sucked that out of their thumb. That meant they got it from home. They got it from their community, somewhere or another. Now, Sometimes what young people will do, they will exaggerate what they hear. They may push it a little further than what they hear their parents say or the, their, uh, the older generation in their conversation say. They may push it a little further, but they did not get it strange. One of the things uh, and it's interesting, in 2000, I think it was the 2006 election when uh, Bush was reelected, he went to Lancaster County and he met with the Amish and they really liked him. And that year um, in Lancaster County and some other places, there was just a, there was a bit of an uptick for, um, for, I mean, the Amish don't forbid voting, okay? But there was a little, not most, of, most of them don't vote, but about 10% of them, 5 to 10% of them do. That year there was an uptick in the voting. Why? Well, they saw Mr. Bush as being somebody that, um, you know, he was, he was a farmer. You know, he had this ranch in Texas. He's sort of a likable kind of person. Um, he was against abortion. 
And you know, the whole uh, homosexual issue has come on. It seems like he's against that. So we really need to go vote for him to, so that, the political, that he can keep these things from coming in. So a few more of them went and voted for him. All right. Now, one of the things I have noticed in the course of my, my um, experience in the Mennonite church, and I've been a Mennonite since I was 17 years old, and I'm now 58, so um, that's a pretty long, most part of my life, is that I figured this out very early on, is that Mennonites are non-voting Republicans. <laughs> Okay, they're non-voting Republicans. Well, my problem is, is that I grew up in a milieu and a home and an extended family that were voting Democrats. And this was really curious to me. Now, I would just say that I have thoroughly repented of my Democratic background. <laughs> I thoroughly repented of it. I would like to see our people thoroughly repent of their non-voting republicanism, okay? And now, when you look at this, you understand, I can understand it as a historian, as a person who looks at factors and influence people, I can understand why Mennonites are non-voting republicans. Back in the 19th century, they were voting republicans. And, but in the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, particularly among what became the, the, the precursors of the conservative Mennonite movement, there came about this conviction that we should not vote. Okay, but it did not mean that people didn't have political ideas, political thinking. What I would like to argue for is for us to foster an attitude of actual all political system, politicism, where we are not, we have the objectivity to sit back and see, okay, there are some good things in this political slice, there are some good things in this political slice, but in both of these things, there are some big, major problems, and neither of them embody the kingdom of this world. And so I, I would encourage you as you have opportunity to have conversations with your students, to respond to the things that they say and so on, is to really help them to form a thoroughgoing apoliticism in which their focus is on the kingdom of God. They're not putting their confidence and their trust in who wins the election, who gets into the Supreme Court, well, we've had just had, you know, I just tell you, I'm fascinated by politics. I really do. Um, and and uh, I, um, I, I mean, I, I have read about, I read, I, I, actually the last couple of years, I decided it was probably good for me to take a fast from reading about politics, and I've pretty well stayed away from it all, um, which I think actually is, hasn't hurt me one bit. But, you know, it is not going to matter who gets elected president. It is not going to matter who gets appointed to the Supreme Court. Is it going to really bring about a change? No.
because this is not just politics. What we're looking at today, and there are things to be concerned about. There have been major cultural shifts in our society that should be troubling to us. Okay? But the ship has departed. The change has happened. And we are not going to turn this country and this world around. And it really wasn't quite as golden age as we wanted it to think about before. How many of you people want to go back to the golden age of pre-1865 in this country? I don't want to be there. I don't want to be there, so I don't. Um, every time, every age has its strong points when it comes to its moral fiber. Every time, every age has its, its faults. And sometimes it is a matter of trading one for the other. And that is the thing that is so enticing for us, to, prioritize, to put priorities on certain things and to accept other things that really are not that great. I'll give you an example. In World War II, our country came in on the side of the Allies against Nazi Germany. And, the, and of course, Nazi Germany was, um, I'm, I really shouldn't do this because, you know, whenever you bring the Nazis in, you've lost your argument. Um, you know, <laughs> but it's such a handy thing. And I'm not really talking, really focusing on the Nazis here. But World War II was, um, the Allies were against the, the, the uh, Axis powers. Nazi Germany and Italy were fascist. Uh, Japan was just being uh, Japan um, <laughs> at that particular point. And, but they were, all, they were all imperial. They were all uh, looking for more room, taking over more territory. They had, uh, particularly Nazi Germany, had uh, some ideologies about a superior race and so on that were reprehensible. But what did our nation do? The, the moral high ground is we need to stop this awful, wicked Nazism. How did, we, how did we accomplish that? We accomplished that by allying ourselves with equally wicked, awful Soviet communism. Okay. We have no, there was no moral high ground. Now, Nazism came to an end. All right, we defeated them. The other thing you have to keep in mind is that we did not get involved in World War II to rescue the Jews. Okay, we didn't do that. That's not on the radar. That's an afterthought. There's hints of this happening, but it really was not a main reason until afterwards. Something that people, you know, they'll argue, well, we, don't we need to get involved in this war to rescue? We needed to rescue the Jews. That wasn't why we got into it. And it was something that was really not all that people were all that aware of until after the war. But the Soviet Union came in, they took over Eastern Europe, and the next 50 years, um, Eastern Europe bears the consequence of that. The rationale for using violence, the rationale for getting involved in war, is always pragmatic. Okay. But it usually 
fails its own pragmatic test or criteria because it doesn't bring about the result that they um, are saying it will. We have been involved since 2001, 18 years of war in several fronts. It doesn't look like it's winding down. And it certainly hasn't increased um, it, has, it, it doesn't look like it has achieved the results it was supposed to, to achieve. And it's a thing of shifting alliances. Uh, at points, we have supported people that we have opposed to. Suddenly, some persons uh, become allies uh, against other enemies, and so on. And ultimately, it fails even its own pragmatic test. All right. And so we should be very, very skeptical as non-resisting Christians whose focus is on the kingdom of God of, of acceding in any way to the supposedly pragmatic rationales for the use of violence. Because the only way that their only justification is if it works, and it so very seldom ever works. Okay. Now, let's then look at the next point. And like I said before, I'm going to switch uh, points two and three to peace in the just community. And here I'm looking primarily at the kingdom of God and primarily at the church. Peace in the just community. Um, Guy F. Hirschberger wrote two rather important works in the mid-20th century. The first one was War, Peace, and Non-Resistance, which he wrote during World War II. And it is still, I think, in many ways, a very good uh, treatment of the whole subject of of non-resistance. There are, I think, some weaknesses to it. I don't know how it's good. He wrote a second book. Uh, called The Way of the Cross in Human Relations. Not as quite as well known, but well worth reading if you have an opportunity to read it. One of the things that Hirschberger mentions, in, or one of the kind of the, the themes of, of that book, and of course this is, he's writing this, in the, starting working on this in the 50s, uh, and so on, I think it uh, is published in the late 50s. This is, uh, we have the beginning of the civil rights movement, um, and so on. And um, the whole question of, of justice. And the civil rights movement, of course, um, was probably really the last religiously, the last, the, the last social and, and civil, civil rights um, movement that actually used religious terminology to frame its arguments. Now, how it did that really played into a form of civil religion and so on, but nonetheless, the metaphors, the symbolisms and so on were those taken from the Bible. And it's no accident that the major leaders of that movement among the African-American community were preachers. 
and so on. And in the midst of this, Hirschberger was struggling with what, how to respond to this, having great sympathy for the, for the, for the, uh, the plight of African Americans for their subordinate status, for the oppression that they were experiencing, for the inequities that were legal, okay, as well as social. And, but feeling at that particular point, now I think he somewhat changed in his thinking later, but feeling at that particular point uncomfortable with the tactics and the philosophy and also just the tie-in with the civil religion. And he began to talk about doing, not demanding justice, but doing justice. And I think this is where our focus should be. It is in doing justice. And of course, he cites um, from uh, you know, what, what a man is required of thee, but to, how's it go? Love, love God. Um, how is it? Love God. Yeah, yes. Say that again. Right. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Okay? Now, I think that this is a very good point for us to pick up. Because the community of Christ, our churches, should be places where justice is done. And justice isn't acted. Our relationships with each other should be peaceful, but they also need to be just. And I have at times seen in our communities where there has been an appeal made for peace and so on, and it has allowed injustice to continue or not to be dealt with. And, you know, we can, we can influence the society around us. We can have an impact on it only if we ourselves are a just community. In the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, when Mennonites began to, began to do mission work in, in urban areas and, and even focused on some African-American communities and so on. Um, in Virginia Conference, which is one of the places where they did this, the conference actually made, and you know, this is in the South, this is, in, this is where things are segregated and so on. What did they decide? They said, well, you know, and they practiced the common cup. What do you do? They had two cups. That's not justice. That's, that's not embodying God's justice. That's letting the larger society and its values impinge upon you and to form some of your thinking and so on. Maybe it's different now, and I think it's getting better. But are our communities really free from racial, uh, racial prejudice? Are they? Not as much as they thoroughly should be. Okay, not as much as they thoroughly. We need to embody the justice of God, the equity of God. We need to be an example of that. And only then can we, um, 
and we have an impact on the world. And then I would like to also talk about situations that just grieves me, just saddens me. Uh, In November here, I will be going to a conference in Lancaster County, um, a very interesting conference. Maybe some of you are going to it. But it's a, a conference on Anabaptist awareness of sexual abuse. And this is present among us. And it should not be present. It's like Paul said, you know, there's, this should not even be once named among you. But it is. But it is. Sometimes I think our non-resistance, though, has gone to seed because, and that we really do not have a very deep appreciation. We have a little bit too facile uh, or too easily um, and simplistic idea about the role of forgiveness, about how victims should be treated and how they should be regarded. Um, and, uh, and in some cases, I have heard and a few cases have actually witnessed where the, vi- where the onus falls on the victim rather than on the perpetrator. And part of this is because we have this emphasis on forgiveness and you need to forgive, which is, is true, okay? But I think that sometimes we have been too, too ready to accept a rather easy statement of repentance, of acknowledgement of evil, and how deeply rooted that evil is, and what's, what, what incredible efforts need to be implemented to eradicate that evil from the person and from our communities. And then the call for those who have become victims to forgive. Well, yes, they do need to forgive. But forgiveness when you've been damaged is not an easy thing to do. It's not easy. It's not a one-time thing. When, you know, we, I sometimes hear, well, you know, their problem is they're bitter. Well, if you've had a bitter experience, you're bitter. You have to come to terms with it because it will destroy you in the end. But part of the thing of solving the problem is not letting the perpetuator off the hook and allowing a very easy, facile, you know, make up, stand up and make a confession and it's all done with and, you know, let's go on. It doesn't work that way. Okay. We need, in these cases, to insist that there does need to be genuine repentance. There needs to be a means by making sure this doesn't happen again. And that... Um, that, that the, the primary focus is on the victim and what their, their needs are and to walk with them, to help them move maybe haltingly, step by step, toward healing, toward forgiveness, and, and again, um, be, be part of this community. Let's not let our, our non-resistance go to seed and 
have a very easy, have this very facile, very easy idea of what it entails to forgive. When we're asking somebody to forgive us, we're acknowledging, first of all, that we harmed them, which is, the, is something we need to do. But you know, the other thing that we're doing is we're actually asking them to take on the pain of the harm. And that is something, when we do that, we should be very careful and have a lot of compassion for what we are actually asking this person to do, particularly when we don't have to experientially do that. Let's do justice and be a just society where the victims are not oppressed by an easy kind of demand for forgiveness. Okay, then the next point I want to look at is peace and creation. In Romans 8, when am I supposed to end here? Uh, Nobody told me. I have five minutes to cover uh, two points. All right. Okay. Peace and creation. All right. Paul says in Romans 8, 18 to 22, I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to compare with the glory which shall be revealed to us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to fertility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also would be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Now, one of the things we have to recognize is that our sin, our, our ancestors' sin, not only impacted them, it impacted the whole creation. Death came into the world. And, you know, we had the cycle of death. Things die. You know, trees, the leaves fall off. They're in the ground. They decompose. Next year we have the new trees come out. We have the cycle of life and of death. But we also have this idea that, that man's sin has really marred the creation. Do you think there were two zombies before Adam sinned? No, they weren't. Do you think that there were volcanic eruptions before Adam sinned? I don't think so. All right? So we know that we have marred it, but we still have this obligation. We still have this commission uh, that God gave Adam in the, in the garden, and as that was to exercise dominion to take care of God's creation. Now, I'm not advocating tree hugging here or anything like that, but I'm also not advocating just cutting down any tree because it really doesn't matter. Because, you know, the Bible does say it shall all burn up in a fervent heat. Have you heard people say that? I just think, dear oh me, oh dear oh me. But you don't want somebody to come down and come by and uh, cut down the nice grove of trees that you just planted in your backyard, do you? No, no. The point I want to make here is that part of being a peaceable people, part of 
of being redeemed is that we do take care of God's earth. It is his earth. It is his creation. And uh, certainly it is wearing out, as it says in Hebrews. Okay? And as, it, as, uh, as Peter says, it's reserved for fire. But you notice what Peter says at the end. A second, if you turn to 2 Peter 3, very quickly I'll refer to it. It's all going to burn up in a fervent heat. He talks about the heavens and the earth. But what follows that? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know, just as we live here in this world, following Jesus' commands to not resist evil, to turn the other cheek, to live, in, live with peace and love, with our neighbor, with our fellow man, and so on. He expects us to do that now. Knowing that this is just a foretaste, this is just just a beginning of what it's going to be in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. I think so also. He expects us, when it comes to dealing with his creation, it is his creation, to treat it with care and to husband it and not to exploit it, and to waste it, and so on. There is a connection, I think, here. Just as there is a connection, when it ta- and then this helps me to segue into my last one, the resurrection, peace in the resurrection. There is a connection here with the earth that we live on now, and the new heavens and the earth, just as there is a connection between this mortal body that we have right now, and the glorified, resurrected body we will have in the future. There is a connection. And just as in this mortal body now, we need to live and to function in accordance with God's will. So we need to, in this earthly existence, take care of God's creation in a foretaste of that new heavens and new earth where righteousness will dwell. Then, peace and the resurrection. Romans 5, 3 to 4 says, We also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. The point I want to make here is, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, If there is no resurrection, we are of all people, of all men, most miserable. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's how we should live. If there's no resurrection, go ahead, eat, drink, and be merry. It doesn't matter. Okay? (coughs) It only matters because there is something beyond here. This, when we die, that's not the end. When this earth comes to an end, that's not the end. And we are definitely told that things are going to wax worse and worse, and things are going to get get bad. I think we can see that happening here. Though I would also say that we are here in, in our country and in much of the Western world, we are looking at things from a vantage point that has not been the experience of people in the past and is still not the experience of many other people in this world today. Okay? 
You know, uh, there's this, uh, there's this, uh, there's this uh, uh, eschatological viewpoint that talks about whether the, um, uh, you're going to have a pre-trib rapture and, or so on, whether the saints are going to suffer and so on. That can only come up by, be developed by people who live in a nice, safe environment and aren't experiencing persecution, which has not been the experience of many Christians in many places. But we look forward to the resurrection. And we need to do it with patience. We need to do it with hope. And I think so many times we feel that maybe some violence, maybe some exercise of force would be okay because it will have this pragmatic result. Jesus calls us to be patient, to wait and hope for this resurrection. And remember what happens with the resurrection. After the resurrection is the judgment. And the judgment is the righting of all wrongs. That's what the judgment is. So impatient waiting for the hope of the resurrection, we are putting our confidence in the fact that in the end, God will right all wrongs. And as he clearly tells us, it really does matter what you do now as to which side of that balance sheet you want to belong. Leslie Nugent, somebody uh, asked him one time, are you a pessimist or an optimist? And he said, I am neither a pessimist nor an optimist. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.